Hey everyone! You're listening to Hot and Bothered Cultivating Sustainable Resistance with me, Vicki Abugalium. And me, Jordan Mays. Welcome to the show and thank you for tuning in. Today's show is titled Now and Later Ongoing Struggles in Environmental Justice. Today we will be discussing some important campaigns against domineering ecology and the pacification of the movement. Something we also neglected to do in our first show, which we will practice moving forward, is working to provide content warnings and preface to our discussion. Today we have a content warning that we will be discussing grave digging, corporate violence, and state violence. We also wanted to start providing a land acknowledgement in the start of our shows, which is also in a process of revision. So today we're recording on Ohio State's campus. Uh, The land that Ohio State occupies is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ojibwe, and Cherokee peoples. Um, Specifically, the university resides on land ceded in the 1795 Treaty of Greenville and the forced removal of tribes through the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Um, But in saying that, I want to acknowledge that acknowledgement is just one step in recognizing and reckoning with U.S. history. And we need to go much further than solely acknowledgement. So that being said, our opening land acknowledgement will likely change as we continue to learn and grow here on Hot and Bothered. We would like to welcome all listeners to hold us accountable to that promise and be open to suggestions for change. We will also do the work of moving past acknowledgements into action. Now, let's get started with today's show. We made it, y'all. We made it to episode two. And you returned to listen to us, um, which is incredible. So to recap on our last show, we really set the stage of our time together. We discussed how important it is to base our discussion of any environmental justice related topics and the principles of abolition. And we talked a little bit about the, quote, beginning of the environmental justice movement in the United States. Yes, and now we get to tie our foundation in with some real examples. Dive a little bit deeper into the past, present, and future environmental justice movement and future our first interview. We covered a lot of ground in the last episode. Uh, If you remember, we covered the 1982 Warren County protest in North Carolina, uh, which is one of the hallmark moments in EJ movement U.S. history. But the Warren County protest was not the first or only of its kind at that time. Um, The movement resulted as a culmination of civil protests against environmental pollution across the United States, with demonstrations occurring in Triana, Alabama, and a region known as Cancer Alley, Louisiana, in addition to Warren County. This accumulation of demonstrations really gave rise to the environmental justice movement. But also at the same time, a lot of organizations started popping up to sustain those fights. So we're going to talk about that today. And as we talked about the roots of the academic roots of the environmental justice movement, it's important to recognize the cultural legacies of resistance that researchers have been studying. The fight against such systems of organizations have been going on since we started populating around agricultural sites, establishing the city-states. Some of the most drastic instances of these practices of domineering ecology stem from European colonizers enforcing agricultural techniques upon land they wish to facilitate settlements on. 
Over the years, with strong black and indigenous resistance all over the colonies and an ever-expanding crisis of biodiversity and climate change, settlers were forced to accept the realities of their occupation. This resulted in settlers taking up actions on their own and or joining other existing camps of resistance around their respective regions. Horatio R. Trio observed, quote, The first major wave of direct action carried out by radical environmentalists in the United States occurred in the 1970s, following the first Earth Day celebrations. The activists included the Arizona Phantom, who dismantled railroad tracks and disabled equipment in an attempt to stop construction of a coal mine in the desert highlands. The Eco Raiders, a group of male college students who caused half a million dollars in damage by burning billboards, disabling bulldozers, and vandalizing development projects in and around Tucson. The Fox, who plunged drainage pipes, capped factory smokestacks, and dumped industrial waste from a U.S. steel plant into the Chicago offices of the company's CEO. The Billboard Bandits, who toppled roadside advertisements in Michigan and the Bolt Weevils, a group of farmers in Minnesota who disabled 14 electrical towers that were to be used for new power lines across the prairie." End quote. In 1971, Greenpeace was founded to accelerate the movement of environmental justice and forms of direct action, with some of its splinter groups committing to more radical and transformative actions. These groups are thought to have inspired the founders of Earth First, a collective founded on the principles of economic disruption as a tactic to make unsustainable industries unprofitable. While economic disruption was not a new tactic, its time at the forefront of radical action was a dramatic shift in perspective for environmental politics, particularly in the face of settler political systems. The scene beforehand had been restricted to polite politics that often led to the perpetuation of extractive social, political, and ecological frameworks. The indigenous struggle against colonialization and such frameworks, and the subsequent extractive laid out, is important foundation for where the movement is today. Focusing on fluid internal structures, economic disruption, and land-based politics are just some of the more noticeable characteristics of black and indigenous resistance that are still alive in the milieu of radical environmentalism today. With neoliberal economics on the rise and states engaging in foreign interventions securing extractive energy resources and global hegemony, more disruptive tactics have transferred from indigenous and black resistance for self-determination to the public imagination of European and American settler environmentalist movements, meaning that the practice of disrupting trade and sabotaging cargo in the name of negating the forces that prevail over our autonomy has been woven through the history of black people in America and has been taken into the forefront, finally, throughout the past 50 to 80 years. Revolts carried out by enslaved folks was a tradition that was embarked on both the boats and into daily life of working into the colonies, securing our own sense of autonomy outside of the empire and plantation. The increasing BIPOC presence in the radical settings today has led to an increased attempt to escape the logic of the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is the era defined by human domination of ecological processes. One particular reason radical black and indigenous resistance has always had a flavor of empire ending, like ending the U.S. empire, simply because we are left with no other viable option for survival. With the state being one of the most complicit and active agents in the destruction of global biodiversity, planetary toxification, and climate change, we must be able to analyze its role in the degradation of our planetary health. Yeah, the main reason that the state and market destroy everything that they touch is because... They're based on an extractive ideology that aims to make a profit, which is rooted in settler colonialism, as we have talked about at length. 
But this profit-making does not come from nowhere. It comes at the expense of human lives. Laura Polito of the University of Southern California defines this process of deriving social and economic value um, from the racial identity of a person as racial capitalism. Polito wrote that, quote, The state refuses to implement meaningful initiatives in order to maintain racial capitalism. Capital does not have to actually address environmental justice issues because it knows there will be minor, if any, sanctions. Indeed, bureaucrats seek to avoid the anger of conservatives by not enforcing the law. The state is not about to dismantle this ecological service that allows firms to remain competitive on the global marketplace. When we put together these two facts, the devaluation of people of color plus capital acting with legal impunity, environmental racism must be understood as state-sanctioned racial violence, end quote. This reality has definitely helped bolster acts of solidarity and led to an increase in environmental direct action. Such an understanding of the global powers also allows for a change in perspective, especially in communities that have managed to, if not completely escape or ignore state violence, but benefit from it. Okay, now let's talk about how the environmental movement has been failing to achieve its goals. I mean, it's not a failure, but it's not a success. It's like an unsuccess or an unfailure, but it's something. Um, And it's partially because of the co-optation by the state that we've been talking about, but it's also partially because of declines in um, really impactful direct actions that lead to social change. So what I mean when I say failure is that the environmental movement has to this point failed to stop rampant industrial pollution. Like, we still have climate change um, for the reasons that we do. Uh, The environmental movement in the United States saw its peak in the 1970s when movement activists gathered by the millions to celebrate the first Earth Day in 1970. This sparked the formation of a bunch of organizations, just as Jordan spoke about, but it also sparked the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, the EPA, and the passing of the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the subsequent Resource Conservation and Recovery Act in 1976. Uh, However, the movement has not seen many significant changes in environmental degradation since the passage of these policies. Some scholars contend that the RCRA is a representation of the co-optation of the mainstream environmental movement by industrial actors. In fact, pollution has only increased in the U.S. since the peak of the environmental movement in the 1970s. The U.S. now produces 5 million kilotons of carbon emissions annually as compared to 4.3 million in 1970. So the U.S. environmental movement may be regarded as a failed social movement to this point. As environmental degradation is rampant and climate change has not been prioritized at the national policy level. Um, But leading up to the 1970s, like clearly Silent Spring made a huge wave um, and the anti-toxics movement produced some policy and everyone was lit at Earth Day 1970. Everyone was so excited about the blue marble picture. And then it seemed like it just stopped. Um, For those who are unfamiliar, Silent Spring was Rachel Carson's environmental science book about the pesticide DDT, which finally pushed the U.S. government to intervene in the market's rampant production of poisons. Um, You could argue that they really never stopped producing that level of 
poison and i would agree with you but silent spring was a a a huge book for the movement in that time anyway um what happened why do we see direct action fade away and actually what we mean is why do we see direct action kind of fade out of the public imagination like it never actually left you know the last landmark policy change to date on climate was actually a result of the environmental justice movement's activism rather than the influence of the mainstream environmental movement with the passage of the executive order um, 12898 on environmental justice which was signed by president bill clinton in 1994 um and that executive order just stated that um in order to address injustice environmental injustice um we have to consider the ways that our social identities play into the creation of environmental injustice so this is the executive order that said that like race is a factor in environmental harm and we need to eliminate disproportionate exposure to harm based on race and class um and then recently actually there was justice 40 which was an executive order signed by now president biden in his first month in office in 2020 that pledged to commit 40 percent of the investments in clean energy to climate to disadvantaged communities which sounds great right but recently the biden administration um decided that they're actually not going to consider race as like a determining factor of what marginalizes communities what um actually qualifies them as receiving these investments which is insanity um if you listen to the first episode of the show you know that it is very important that we do consider race to be a factor in producing environmental harm um so what does that mean for justice 40 i wish i could talk at length about it but i i can't because i haven't like read the whole thing and the outcomes of them saying that race is no longer a factor but all i'm saying is that uh it doesn't sound good but anyway after the passing of you know nepa the clean air act clean water act um the executive order 12 12 um, after the passing of these policies, just like it always happens in a movement policy cycle situation, people became a bit complacent. Um, this complacency led to kind of like the full co-optation of the environmental movement by institutions of whiteness. Um, I touched on this in episode one, but the mainstream environmental movement is generally seen as a racially exclusive movement in which there's a consistent focus on serving the interests of whites. After the 1970s, environmental activists began to focus on recycling as a means to push the environmental agenda forward via the establishment of environmental regulations at federal and state levels. However, this had an unintended negative consequence of hyper-focusing the movement's resources on establishing a national recycling infrastructure. Further, the focus on recycling shifted the burden of mitigating environmental degradation away from corporations, which were polluting the environment, to individuals who were consuming industrial products. As such, the responsibility for environmental protection was no longer rooted in the need for systemic changes to capital production processes. 
Another unintended negative consequence of focusing on recycling was that in the face of negative research findings related to pollution from recycling, environmental activists were kind of, I mean, you could say that they were forced to support recycling despite its shortcomings as a clean industrial process. So the shift from systemic to individual responsibility for managing environmental disaster also limited the ability of citizens to participate in the environmental decision-making process as the movement focused not on mobilizing citizens to engage in disruptive collective action, but to, quote, consciously consume industrial products. Recycling proved to be another instance in which the environmental movement exclusively served the white community while ignoring the impacts of this process on non-white communities. Um, there's actually a really great book by David Pello called Garbage Wars. It was published in like 2002, I think. Um, that's kind of about this. And it talks about how, you know, recycling facilities, they're still polluting facilities. And they still disproportionately negatively harm the health of BIPOC communities. Um, even though they're touted as like a clean infrastructure um, but as we also discussed just now, this shift away from direct action towards less disruptive tactics is supported by the institutions of racial capitalism and whiteness. Like this, this is the era of nimbyism, which if you are unfamiliar means not in my backyard activism. That's the, the acronym in which more powerful social actors such as landowning whites, middle class and upper class whites, etc., are able to push polluting facilities into other neighborhoods and their activism kind of stops once they achieve that goal, um, once it's not in their backyard anymore. So this is just another example of racial capitalism and what Kimberly Crenshaw explains as whiteness as property as a facet of critical race theory. Like, the byproducts of industrial pollution are deemed as a problem only to the extent that they harm or do not serve the interests of whites. And after those byproducts are relocated to harm some other population, NIMBY activists are satisfied. So, the point is that the institutions of whiteness that we're discussing have contributed to the failures of the environmental movement in a mixture of ways. And we need to move past that and recenter justice-oriented approaches to environmental degradation and the climate crisis if we are ever going to really be able to live through the climate crisis. But despite the complacency, despite the co-optation or the attempted co-optation, we do see continued resistance um, on the ground despite co-optation by market interests. There is a mainstay of direct action at pipelines and at site logging sites. Um, I want to say like frontline communities that are on the ground blockading pipelines, blocking logging projects. They've always been here. They've never stopped defending their land and their livelihoods. Um, and also opposition to pipelines has always been here. It just falls out of the public eye from time to time. Um, and so today we're going to talk about what we can learn from the pipeline uh, issue. 
So currently, environmental justice activists have taken the pipeline issue to the center of frontline community organizing. There's a diversity of focal areas within this issue, including the targeting of fracked gas plants, fracked shale mining fields, crude oil pipelines, offshore oil drilling, and tar sand pipeline operations. Because there's so many ways that we're extracting resources from this earth. <laughs> Um, specific examples include the Keystone XL pipeline, Dakota Access, Mountain Valley, and Enbridge Line 3 pipelines. Um, and locally, the Ohio State Combined Heat and Power Plant, which is in Columbus, Ohio. And another one that's in, that's now in Columbus, right? Uh, yeah, the Northern Loop Project from Columbia Gas. Yes, upcoming local pipeline that everyone should... Construction starts about the end of the year, I think. All right. So the main tactic used by activists across the U.S. to combat the further construction of pipelines has been the use of blockades in addition to, like, intensive public media campaigns and protests raising awareness of the issue. Many of these acts of resistance have been led by indigenous leaders of the environmental justice movement who organize in pursuit of land sovereignty, self-determination, and earth jurisprudence, um, the Indigenous Environmental Network has been integral in organizing activists in systematic blockades and demonstrations at vulnerable areas of pipeline construction, in addition to a lot of um, groups within the network and outside of the network. Um, activists will camp, park vehicles in front of construction areas, chain themselves to pipeline. You know, you've heard of people chaining themselves to trees, barring the path of construction, um, in addition to the destruction of property, such as construction equipment like cranes and forklifts. Um, these are acts of civil disobedience in which activists are often arrested, bail funds are organized to account for those taken to jail, and then coupled with media campaigns and the emergence of a youth-led international climate justice protest and strike movement, these tactics have been successful in halting construction of some pipelines in the U.S. However, activists have been less successful at permanently decommissioning pipelines or winning legal campaigns against them. Yet the fight against extractive industries stays alive, despite the constant state repression. Uh, the so-called United States' history with the dispossession of native land leaves them well-equipped and trained to repress instances of resistance, often on the payroll of the corporation facing community pushback. Corporations have been doing a lot more than just paying off the cops, because companies are known to buy off surrounding land around a project just to make sure that they can utilize police forces on their whim. A synthesis of their settler colonial techniques can be observed at Standing Rock, as Nick Estes, an organizer with the Red Nations and assistant professor at the University of New Mexico, recalls, quote, In the early hours of Saturday, September 3rd, 2016, blood was spilled in the struggle over hollowed grounds. Caterpillar earth movers came barreling across the prairie. A small army of attack dogs and their handlers, private security hired by Dapple, guarded the site. Followed closely by a spotter helicopter whirling above, all of them were ready for a fight. It was Saturday of Labor Day weekend, a holiday celebrating the working poor who had picketed and protested and were beaten and shot to win an eight-hour workday. But this holiday weekend, it was unionized pipeline workers who clocked in while indigenous people formed a picket line. The indigenous marchers who showed up that day were protecting their lands and water. They were land defenders and water protectors. 47 workers who crossed picket lines, on the other hand, are called scabs because they undermine working-class solidarity. When the water protectors saw the heavy machinery that morning turning soil, it was human remains, their relatives that were being unearthed. Native people quickly formed a blockade, 
the water protectors pushed down the fences, throwing themselves in front of bulldozers. A white man jumped from a truck, spraying a line of women and children with CS gas, a chemical that burns skin, eyes, and throats, and can cause blindness. The handlers, the people who train animals to hunt human beings, manhunters, sick attack dogs on the picket line, blood dripped from the dog's maws, end quote. In Minnesota, that same struggle, we have seen law enforcement take $2.9 million from a public utility commission's escrow account that Enbridge had set up with the surrounding region. That account is filled with a total of $4.25 million and has been utilized to directly desecrate Ashanabi land with the Line 3 project. That same money has aided in the militarization of county and municipal police forces, with departments betting on getting new equipment with the new Enbridge money coming in. ABC reported reimbursements for resorts, stationary patrols, and, quote, mobile surveillance on multiple believed rally participants, end quote. A lot of the tactics used in the pipeline opposition work is linked to anti-logging practices that grew out of the needs to disrupt rampant logging practices approved by state agencies for energy production, resource extractions, and weapon testing. The practices of tree sits can be seen in the forests of Cascadia, Atlanta Forest, Ferry Creek, across the Appalachian forests, and more. In the struggles of the Mountain Valley Pipeline across the Appalachian regions, the yellow finch tree sits disrupted construction for 932 days. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. But movements all around Turtle Island are changing their strategy or tactic of attack. On Wet'suwet'en territory, the company Coastal Gas Link has been trespassing on unceded land and is being defended by land defenders. They have seen raids on their houses and shelters by the Royal Canadian Militarized Police, leaving whole shelters demolished in their path. Blockades and other disruptions have been popping up all around Turtle Island, with a wonderful culmination of energy landing on February 17th, 2022 where around 20 individuals sabotaged a work site on the pipeline. They told employees to leave and took a million dollars away from a company that has desecrated lands and perpetuating colonial practices for profit. All these struggles have found strength in finding a connection to the land that the state can never sever, and forming networks that can sustain the kind of resistance that demand a paradigm shift in the public imagination. Yeah, thank you so much for going into so much detail about like exactly what is going on. And before we move on um, from this section about, like, ongoing resistance, um, maybe we should talk a bit about the Ohio State University combined heat and power plant. Because, hey yo, <laughs> we are in Columbus, Ohio, and there is a fracked gas plant being built less than a mile away from where we are recording this show, literally right now. Um, so for those who are not aware, which I hope, Everyone that listens to this is already aware, um, but also if you're not aware, this is good because now you'll know. Um, the Ohio State University, hashtag sustainability queen, has decided to construct a combined heat and power plant on West Campus right next to the School of Environment and Natural Resources to provide heat and power to the new hospital buildings that they are building using fracked gas. <laughs> Is this hypocritical and ridiculous given their commitment to sustainability and being carbon free by 2030 or 2050? Yes. Yes, it is. And we need more students to organize against the fracked gas plant because the Sierra Club has tried and failed. 
um, in a more litigious way of taking them to court. I have personally tried and failed as well, um, organizing with some students um, because we didn't get enough people on board and there needs to be a critical mass because uh, otherwise, like at this point, yeah, the gas plant's going to be built, but when is it going to be decommissioned? Like it needs to happen soon. It shouldn't even be built in the first place, but more people need to organize against it or we will get nowhere. Okay, we've been talking for a long time. Joining us in the next section is DeAndres Miles, an indigenous geographer who studies indigenous geographies, epistemologies, sciences and technology studies, and tribal cultural resources preservation and protection. Today we're here with Dr. DeAndres Smiles um, joining us in this interview. We're super excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to get to be part of things like this. Sweet. So me and Jordan are both here today. Jordan, do you want to say hi? Howdy, how you doing? <laughs> um, so yeah, let's just get into the interview. And we thought we would might maybe start off just asking if you could tell us a bit about yourself. Um, who are you and what is your relationship with kind of like environmental justice and the environmental justice movement? Sure, I'd be happy to tell you a little bit about myself. So I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Victoria, which is a lovely public university located up on the west coast of Canada, up in Victoria, British Columbia. I've been up there since July. Um, before that, I was a PhD student and then postdoc uh, here at Ohio State in the departments of geography and departments of history. Mm -hmm. uh, do a lot of work surrounding um, indigenous governance and critical indigenous geographies. Uh, more specifically, I study the ways that uh, indigenous contestations over burial grounds and over the treatment of indigenous dead can really unlock new political possibilities, both for the living and the deceased. Um, the living has been the focus of my recent research, which really focuses on the ways on how we can apply the lessons from indigenous nations protecting burial grounds and such, and take that and transfer it over to the ways that they protect uh, the environment and what we call the, the more than the more than human. So, wow. in, yeah. Uh, you know, admittedly, I'm uh, I'm an academic more than more than a, a an activist, I guess, in the traditional sense. A lot of the work that I've done in environmental justice has been in the academic sphere, but mm -hmm. I've been really, really fortunate to be in contact in in collaboration with a lot of folks who have been doing a lot of work on the ground in these sorts of uh, endeavors. Yeah, that's so amazing. It's really great to hear about your work, and um, I know Jordan. Oh, I know Jordan has been uh, kind of reading up on a lot of your work in preparation for this, and we were really excited to have you on. So like you mentioned, um, I know you've moved from Columbus recently, but I also wanted to ask if you could comment on maybe some of the direct action that exists in Ohio and the Midwest. Um, I don't know, like you did just mention you've had a chance to work with people who are on the ground. Um, could you comment on that? We did talk a lot about pipeline actions in the first segment of our show today. So we're just wondering, like, what are the challenges in sustaining direct action and resistance in our region specifically? 
That is a great question, and we happen to live in one of the regions of North America which has a lot of stuff going on related to direct action and activism, um, especially surrounding pipelines. Mm -hmm. I think about um, work being done in my home state of Minnesota, for example, surrounding Enbridge's Line 3. There's been a lot of things going on here over the last couple of years surrounding the reconstruction of what Enbridge calls the new Line 3, which they're building through northern Minnesota. The mm. old Line 3 was a, there is a 70-plus-year-old pipeline that is getting close, if not beyond, the end of its service life. And it's uh, sprung multiple leaks over the years, including what we understand to be the largest inland oil spill in American history about uh, wow. a little over 30 years ago up there in northern Minnesota. And, you know, people are familiar with Line 3. They're familiar with the, the stuff surrounding Dapple, um, mm -hmm. Line 5 um, across the Mackinac Straits here in Michigan. Um, but also there's other things that kind of exist kind of more below the surface, right? So um, a lot of energy resources flow through states such as Ohio, where fracking and the oil and gas industry have very, very deep roots here. Mm -hmm. Um, even as close as, say, uh, places like the Ohio State University. I know um, one of the examples of direct action that I was um, in proximity to when I was here as a postdoc was the push against the building of a power plant on campus. One of the things where students felt really strongly about that. Um, so there's a lot of work going on in indigenous and non-indigenous contexts in, in the region. Um, and, you know, it, it varies in public consciousness, right? Like I said, things like Dapple and Line 3 Absolutely. are very, very visible. But there's also the really subtle ways that these sorts of things move across space. I teach a course called Indigenous Environmental Activism, both at UVic and I also um, first taught it at OSU. And I asked the students at, at OSU to do an assignment where they, they uh, pulled up... Uh, pulled up a map on this software called ArcGIS Online and, and um, I had them add a map layer of uh, pipelines to the map and I asked them, you know, take a look at how close these pipelines come to your homes. And a lot of the students were actually really quite surprised. Um, in a city like Columbus, uh, we actually have a lot of these pipelines that move really, really close to this major metropolitan area of uh, two million people, right? So. All, all of this is to say that uh, this is a region of a lot of direct action for uh, really, really important reasons. Yeah, thank you so much for reflecting on that in such detail. We were actually just talking like before this about kind of becoming more familiar with where the pipelines are in Columbus. So that's really, really interesting. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that we're taking a land-based approach, especially as anti-colonial academics and activists. That means centering a land back movement and all of what we're doing. So, like, what kind of state co-optation do you foresee that we need to be wary of? Yeah, so that's a really, really good question. Um, and that's something to be really, really mindful of. The, the state has a long history of infiltrating activist movements and trying to co-opt messages and trying to make them less potent, right? And what I mean by less potent is trying to reshape aims into ones that do not directly threaten hegemony, do not directly threaten capital, do not directly threaten the relationship between the state and um, the energy industry. I think one of the biggest things is um, keeping, you know, this sounds really quite simple, but I can unpack this, is, is really keeping the eye on the prize. If, if land back is a goal, then 
really thinking about, well, how is it that we can, and I say we, I, I mean, these, these movements can mm-hmm. transfer, you know, privilege and, and land and back to indigenous nations and how can um, these movements uphold indigenous viewpoints and how can they do so in a way that is not sanitized, right? Mm-hmm. How can they do so in ways that don't follow what I, I like to call this very liberal framework of of recognition and, and co-optation where it where indigenous viewpoints just happen to be in sync with the the desires of the state and the desires mm-hmm. of capitalism versus these broader systems of abolition and sovereignty and resurgence that really quite honestly threaten to rupture mm-hmm. these systems in, in this really positive generative way. Absolutely. Um, so kind of going back to like that um, comment that we keep bringing up about co-optation, like throughout the EJ movement, there has been a reflection that there is more of a need for direct action. And like in the EJ movement, direct action has kind of fallen out of the line of our current environmental organizing. Um, but I'm wondering if that's true, if we consider like the sustained presence of indigenous resistance to neocolonialism as within this realm of EJ struggles. Like, what are examples of direct actions taken in the last five, ten years? Um, you kind of have talked about some already, but what does that mean for building momentum? And like, how do we get back to that Um away from this attempt at co-optation of our movement? Mm -hmm. That's a really, really great question. So one of the central pillars of the research that I do and and more broadly the ways that we have talked about indigenous resistance and resurgence among indigenous circles here in the past couple of decades uh, really focuses on, uh, instead of direct action and indirect action, focuses on these frameworks of um, everyday versus uh, what I would call spectacular action. So when we mm. think about blockades, we think about pipeline protests, we think about you know people getting arrested up yeah. in places like northern Minnesota, um, protesting you know pipelines. That that's what we would call very spectacular action. It's action mm-hmm. that is made to be visible. It's action that is made to gra- grab people's attention, and that is really good. It's really good at getting in the media. It's really good at grabbing the everyday Americans' attention, for better or for worse. Um, but it also becomes really easy for the state to kind of co-opt these sorts of things and to just paint it as just simple protest or paint it mm-hmm. as criminal activity. I think about a mm-hmm. lot of the anti-protest laws that are that are increasingly being signed into law across the U.S. When we think about uh, more everyday mundane actions, I think this is where we start to see actions that the state cannot co-opt quite wow. as easily, right? And so I, I talk to my students and I say... What would it look like if we were to view the act of waking up and going about our everyday lives as a form of resistance, right? What would it look like to take any sort of action that we do in our daily or weekly or, you know, day to day, everyday, you know, routines that we don't give a second thought to? What would happen if we approach that as a form of activism? And that's something that I really encourage my students and encourage people more broadly to think about when it comes to indigenous resistance and resurgence as a whole, but also activism 
as a whole. Um, I think direct action by its very definition, right, means very sustained, very targeted action mm-hmm. towards a, a given a given goal. In a capitalistic society where our very existences generally are ground down into this, uh, to use Marxist language here, into this system where we're selling our labor power to capitalists, to the state, right? And and our daily routine is built around that. What would it look like for us to just take a step out of that out of that routine? And what might that look like for direct resistance? Um, I'll use indigenous examples as one of the, the key example. In the logics of the colonial state, of the settler colonial state, uh, indigenous peoples like myself are were, were not supposed to be here right now. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to be assimilated out of society and our political systems and our cultural systems are supposed to be gone. So by very definition, me waking up in the morning and me sitting here in the studio with you talking about indigenous yeah. viewpoints, right, as, an, as a, an, an example of direct action that is very mundane and quotidian. And I don't mean mundane in like the negative connotation, but <laughs> it's something like, you know, I don't I, you know, I wouldn't think twice about doing this sort of thing. But right. in logics where I'm not supposed to be here talking mm-hmm. to you right now, my 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 people's lands are supposed to be divvied up already and open for exploitation. And it's and it's not. Um that is a that is a very very powerful form of of direct action, and I think that's something that I I really encourage people to take a look at. Like you know, get out there, get out there in the streets, protest, do do blockades, do what you need to do, but also be mindful of the very everyday activities that can be very direct challenges to this hegemonical capitalism as well. Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that mm-hmm. with us. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your of reflections course. on that. I love how that kind of touches on our next question, which is breaking these colonial logics and this like state codified and bolstering of human-centered frameworks of life, commonly known as like the Anthropocene, and like what sort of systems and networks we can be forming like we are today to sustain not only a spirit of resistance, but of self-determination that can have a, like, a real felt impact on the empire. Great question again. So in, in what we call the Anthropocene, or really um, what I think scholars are more appropriately calling the, the Capitalocene nowadays, it's not only human-focused, but it's very individual-focused, where it's, it's this very personal-centered yeah. view about how we go through the world and how we interact and how we consume things. And so one of the first steps is to really think about accountabilities to the communities that we're a part of, right? Mm-hmm. Not just our political communities, but even, you know, communities like family and friends and and networks of comradeship and, and activism. Mm-hmm. Because collective bonds are really important for breaking down this that, that form of hegemonical kind of control. Because when you start to think about the collective as a whole and you stop thinking about just yourself you think more about um really generative activities that can benefit everybody right i mean we we see this just you know when we we think about generosity and basic care Mm -hmm. work and 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 forms of that nature Mm -hmm. so that's one step um the other the next step it can it can take many many different forms and i can only really speak for my own people's viewpoints where you know our our worldview is that we have deep accountabilities to what what i would call our more than human relatives right plants um animals the water the broader environment some our creation story talks about this Mm -hmm. and 
our creation story is I always tell it every time I, I give any kind of at the beginning of like a class that I teach on the environment or any guest lecture I do on the environment. And one of the most important things, and I, you know, obviously um, we time precludes me from recounting yeah. the entire story here. <laughs> yes. But one of the most important things is that um, I point out that I don't talk about humans anywhere in the story. Like I, I and I point mm -hmm. that out. I say I, I tell this beautiful story about the creation of Turtle Island, and I say. You notice I didn't mention humans, and I ask them, well, why might that be? And of course, like the students um, or, or audience members will generally, unless they're Ojibwe, they're probably not going to know the answer. And I say, <laughs> that's because in our worldview, humans are the least important part of the ecosystem, mm. right? And I don't mean that in some kind of um, what sometimes gets co-opted in like a Neo-Malthusian right. kind of way where it's like, oh, well, humans need to be depopulated. Mm. But it's, uh. it's more like, because if we are the mm. least important part of the ecosystem, that places are more than human relatives on a higher plane of accountability, right? Where we recognize that really our, our more than human relatives are the, are the framework, are the bedrock of what holds the world together. And that we need to protect them and we need to defend them just like we would defend our own human relatives. And I think when you take a look at it from that kind of viewpoint, it makes it quite easy, right? I mean, we would all... Um, I, I won't assume listeners' family dynamics, right? But I think, you know, right. many people will have, you know, they'd have a family member that's like their, their ride or die, right? The mm -hmm. people that like they would, that they would, they would, um, they would gladly protect. And it's like, well, if you view, if you view the water like that, if you view the plants and trees and flowers like that, if you view animals like that, it becomes a lot easier to be able to, you know, reconcile yourself with that kind of framework about what can I do that, that is, that is best for them in the long run, not just myself. Oh, yes. My next question um, kind of draws on some of the themes that you've been teaching on, which is how can settlers draw from indigenous knowledge systems in a way so that the newly built or modified systems and networks are coming up and being fostered in a way and that are non-domineering and not only intent, but in effect as well, while respecting the ever-expanding cultural sovereignty and autonomy of the individuals and communities involved with such growth models and existence? Amazing question. I think probably the most important thing is to not center oneself in these sorts of dynamics, right? In the in the modern environmental movement, in the historical environmental movements, um, we we see these kind of uh, parallel trends where settlers all of a sudden uh, discover, oh hey, we're we're fucking up the environment, right? And therefore, we need to do something about it. And it turns into these problematic things where it becomes them dictating to other people how to go yeah. about being in relation mm -hmm. with the environment. And a lot of times, when indigenous knowledge is consumed by settlers, it becomes something where they make it about themselves. Mm -hmm. And I really, really urge people to not do that. I urge people to listen, to, you know, to do the internal work that they need to do to work through these things on, on their own, that they not uh, draw indigenous peoples into this position where they need, need to be teaching settlers all these things and mm -hmm. expending a bunch of labor to do so. Um, and, and really to, you know, internalize these things and apply it to their own kind of personal context. Right. Um, that, that's one of the things that uh, sometimes has, has happened in indigenous environmental movements as settlers will come in and they'll learn these things. And they're like, OK, this is great. So I, you know, I learned these things and now I'm going to take this kind of leadership role because I've, I've gone through this process of self-transformation. And therefore, mm. you know, therefore I, now, you know, I'm going to help you to do mm. these sorts of things. And indigenous nations and indigenous movements don't need help. Right. They're they're yes. pretty 
they're they're generally going to be pretty savvy about what it is that they need to do they don't need they don't need leaders because they're leading themselves what they need people to do is to be there on the ground with them and to listen and know when to take a step back and when to use their privilege in ways that can really um, assist these movements in in ways that they may not be able to um, break through on their own thank you so much mm -hmm. this has been such a gift to be able to interview with you we just have one last question um, and it's about the show. So the title of the show is Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance. And we were just wondering if you could like reflect on that a little bit. Um, what do you take away from that? Uh, what are your reflections on cultivating sustainable resistance? I really like to think about it in terms of how one can take care of oneself and nourish themselves and this sort of thing. So a number of years ago, um, Winona LaDuke, who is, a, who is a hero of mine and somebody I look up to very immensely, came to Ohio State and gave a talk. And, mm -hmm. and, and she said, you know, if you didn't get arrested at, at Standing Rock, um, come up to northern Minnesota and you can, you can get a chance to be on the front lines with us and get arrested. And I thought that was really, really cool at mm -hmm. first. And then I took after a while, I kind of took a step back and I'm like, well, what if folks can't be out there on the front lines, right? right? What if it could be potentially harmful for them to do so? And that's a question that my students would often ask me. They'd say, well, it, you know, I can't, I can't go up and, and protest. What can I do? And I, I start to point out, you know, there's other ways that you can engage in activism in ways that are not on the front lines, right? Like donating time and, mm -hmm. and money and other sorts of things, but also for anybody that's involved in these movements not only on the front lines but also in you know behind the front lines doing the support work um, you got to take care of yourself uh, this work is really that work is really heavy yes. it's it can take a lot out of you and you are not going to be any good to anybody if you're not nourishing yourself and not doing the work that you need to do to make sure that you are approaching it with uh with um all of your mind and body and spirit so um, it sounds kind of weird, right? Because I think people would be like, oh, what can I do? Like when they ask for advice on like how to, how to, you know, sustain their activism, you know, it's not just, oh, donate X amount of money or take off a month to go mm -hmm. up to go up to a protest camp and do this. It's also like, make sure you're getting sleep, make sure that you're taking care of yourself, make sure you're eating, make sure that you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you have somebody that you can talk to, to, to debrief and like, you know, process things because, you know, it's not, you know, it, the individual, you know, I just got to talking about the ways that we need to think about the collective, but also like, you know, individual self-care is really, really important. Mm -hmm. This kind of work, too. Um, you don't want to build a movement that will just self-destruct because everybody's burnt out. Right. You want to make sure that um, people are able to sustain it for the long run. And you can't do that without taking care of yourself. Thank you again so much to Dr. DeAndre Smiles for coming to the studio and interviewing with us. We truly appreciated the time spent. I personally feel like I learned so much. Um, if you would like to follow DeAndre's work, you can visit his website, DeAndreSmiles.com. It's D-E-O-N-D-R-E Smiles.com. And follow him on Twitter at DeAndre Smiles. Okay, so we're here at the end of the show. Time for our call to action. Um, how appropriate would it be for this show for us to focus our call to action on pipelines? Um, Jordan, do you want to tell us about like what's going on and yeah. where? The previously mentioned Mountain Valley Pipeline 
the opposition to that can be supported through their page on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Appalachians Against Pipelines. For information on Line 3 and 5, they can be found at like the stopline3.org or resistline3.org. And updates can be found on the Megizzy Will Fly accounts of the Instagram and Facebook, alongside reports from the Resist Line 3 account on Twitter. The Fairy Creek blockade is a blockade that grew around some old growth forests facing logging on indigenous land, and you can find more information at the Rainbow Flying Squad on Instagram, or their website, Rainbow Flying Squad, and updates are posted on the Fairy Creek blockade accounts on Instagram and Facebook. Thacker Pass is a lithium mine being pursued currently. Native colonies around have been evicted by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, most likely to be creating man camps for that lithium mine itself. Mm -hmm. More information can be found on the Sugarbush Crew Twitter page, and more information can be found through their link tree and their bio as well. Inbridge is doing another encroachment on native land. Big surprise. Kara land. They held space in February opposing the Inbridge project. You can find more information on the website pages of the indigenous people of the Coastal Bend. Um, on Instagram as well, on at indigenous underscore peoples underscore 361. Yeah, and then so in reference to like earlier in the interview, the ArcGIS map that DeAndre mentioned, um, it would also be important for listeners to like familiarize themselves with the pipelines surrounding your own neighborhood. And you might be surprised to find that there are probably more than one uh, that you live close enough to to be pissed off about it. <laughs> Um, before the interview, before the interview, I was actually going to just like encourage people to look it up, but now I'm like really excited that there is already a tool that exists that can help people discover the existence of pipelines in their close vicinity. So everyone should go check that out. Shout out to, um, specifically Dr. DeAndre Smiles, um, Dr. Laura Polito, who we mentioned, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, Dr. Nick Estes, and Horatio Trillo for inspiring and contributing their knowledge, I guess, in an indirect way to the production of this show. Shout out to Jordan Mays for co-hosting with me. Shout out to myself, Victoria Avogalium. Shout out to our producer, Marissa Twig, um, our sound engineer, Samuel Holman-Smith. Anyone else you want to shout out, Jordan? Our logo designer, Jacqueline Fleming. Yes. Absolute wonderful artist. Please yes. check them out. All right. That's it. It's time to say bye. Adios. Goodbye, friends. See you next month, third Friday of the month, 4 p.m. on Verge and 6 p.m. on WCRS. Anytime you want on Patreon, oh, yeah. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, yes. and Google Podcasts. You can listen later. So listen to us later.